0: Once again, by God's grace and the Lord's tarrying, we find ourselves at the beginning of a new year. And with this new year comes new opportunities, in some ways uh, at least new beginnings. And who among us doesn't relish the idea of a fresh start? That's what Israel is being offered in our text this morning, which is from Exodus 34. I know you thought we were done with Exodus, but at least one more message from Exodus... Israel has sinned egregiously, but they repented. God had been ready to rid himself of them, but Moses interceded for the people. Moses confessed their sin, he sought forgiveness, and he received the promise of restoration. God would pardon their sin. God would renew his covenant with them, and they would have a chance to start again. Israel is at a place of new beginnings. Now, admittedly, the situation circumstances of our text this morning are very specific to a specific time, people, and place, but the principles at play in this message transcend time and place, something we all know about, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each of us knows what it means to make a mess of things. What we have in Exodus 34, verses 11 to 27, is a picture of the real possibility of restoration, of what it means to start again, that there is potential for living a life that is happy in God. So, if you haven't already opened your Bibles, then please open them with me to Exodus 34. We're gonna walk through a few of these verses together, beginning in verse 11. And in verse 11, we find this most fundamental principle of the joyful life of faith. It is this, being happy in God, living in a fruitful, satisfying relationship with God begins with our obedience. The word of God to Israel in verse 11 begins, observe what I command you this day. The word the ESV translates observe is a word that means to guard, to protect, it means to tend to. And the NIV translates it, obey. God wants us to obey. Now, the fact that God desires obedience is hardly news. It's hardly new. It's a theme that runs through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The obedience of his people is very important to God. In our recent study through Exodus, we found in the 19th chapter the words of God to Israel, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. The prophet Samuel had said to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. In that verse, 1 Samuel 15, 22, it tells us that over and above religious rituals, over and above religious-looking observances, which may be done with or without faith, God desires obedience. Obedience is most important to him. And obedience absolutely requires faith. Now, Since obedience is so significant to the Lord and is required by the Lord, we might be wise to ask ourselves this morning, what does obedience to God's command look like in my life? What, what is it, how does this play out in real time? What does it look like for me to obey God as a husband? or to obey God as a wife, or as a son, or a daughter? What does it mean to obey God as a teacher? What does it mean to obey God as a student, as a church member, as an employee, as an employer? What does it mean to obey God as a friend? The concept of obedience is not that complicated. It's easy to talk about. It's harder to do. First, it involves doing what God says to do. If I'm to be obedient, I have to do what God says to do. I am obedient when I surrender myself, when I adhere to what God has made plain in His Word. When I follow the positive commands of Scripture, I'm being obedient. There's a flip side to that, of course. Just as important, if not more so. That obedience involves not doing what God says not to do. If He forbids it, Beloved, we must reject it. If he forbids it, we must reject it. We are not to swim where the Lord has posted a no swimming sign. The water may look deep and cool and refreshing and tempting, but I trust me, the Lord knows what lurks beneath. And if he says no, then no is the answer. Obedience means sometimes not doing the things that God says not to do, which would be following the negative commands of Scripture. We're well aware of the negative commands of Scripture. We understand them to be the thou shalt nots, the word. So in short, we could say that obedience is doing what God says to do. It is following the plain teaching of the Bible, God's word, doing what he says to do and not doing what he says not to do. Are you with me so far? But... There's another facet to obedience that's worth considering before we get into our text this morning. It's worth considering as we begin a new year with God. What about those situations we encounter in this life where the obedient course of action is not so plain? What about the gray areas where it it might not be obvious what ought to be done or what ought to be done? left alone, where there may be no clear-cut scriptural imperative to guide us, where what obedience looks like isn't so obvious in a particular situation actually could vary from one person to another person. People who prefer their world in black and white squirm at this possibility. But there are and there always have been gray areas where Following God is concerned. The early church wrestled with this stuff. Do we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Can we do that or do we not do that? Do we have to still celebrate the festivals? Do we do that or do we not do that? Do we have to observe the Sabbath the same way we always have? Do we do that or not do that? Do we worship on Saturday? Do we worship on Sunday? They wrestled with these gray areas, those occasions where the Bible isn't exactly explicit on what to do or what not to do. So it's not as simple for us, then, is it, to say, I'm just going to do what God says to do, and I'm not going to do what he says not to do. There's this other area in here that comes up, and it's a little bit more complex. How do we handle that? These places, we would consider them to be areas of prudence, of prudence, places where where it's not explicit in the Bible about what to do, what to avoid, about how much is too much, about where lines are to be drawn. This is where discernment, and this is where wisdom, and this is where caution, and these things converge and then are applied. So in the pursuit of obedience, what I'm saying is there are issues of prudence in our lives, and I'm wondering, are there issues of prudence in your life that you should be thinking? Thinking about as you get ready for a new year are the areas of Christian living absent a clear-cut scriptural directive that you specifically are sensing that you ought to begin doing that you ought to be leaving off in order to be holy in order to find contentment in the Lord some of you look a little lost so let me make this a little more clear Maybe there's a show you like. You might even say you're addicted to it. You might even be binging. But it's one that doesn't promote or reinforce biblical values at all. And though you watch it and though you like it, every time you do, you're a little unsettled by it. Maybe you have noticed... Over time, an unsettling tendency you have to reach for one more glass of wine. Maybe you're spending what you sense could be too much time on social media, gazing into business that is not yours at all. Perhaps you're flying a little too close to the flame with some late-night browsing. Maybe you've chatted with an ex online. The case could be made that technically your behavior is not sinful, but you have a sense that it's not exactly right either, and that it could open a door to something that could be awful and bad, and it is still something, too, that if it were found out, you'd be embarrassed about. Only you know what it is that you wrestle with, or what uniquely tempts you and leads you to have a, a less than satisfying relationship with the Lord, what it is that you think, say, or do that puts a wedge between you and Jesus. And what I'm talking about right here, for the sake of obedience and a new year, is making a plan to put these things away. To resolve again to begin a new year with a clean slate, with a clear conscience. To resolve. Oh, you're probably sick of hearing about resolutions. We all know that we make them and we break them. But whenever I hear about resolutions or think about them, I think of the great Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, who at the age of 18 and in, in dire need of direction for his life, began to compile a list in his diary of how he, with the Lord's help, would endeavor to live. These are Edwards' resolutions. Edward's 60th resolution out of 70. The other day, somebody was saying, don't make a resolution to lose 20 pounds in three months. Just make a small resolution that you can make and keep. And I thought, I could lose one pound in three months. (laughs) If I lose one pound, if I say I want to lose one pound in three months, I don't have to do anything until like the last day of the last (laughs) month. This is not the kind of resolution Jonathan Edwards makes. (laughs) These are serious things. And his 60th out of 70 resolution deals with this issue of prudence. One might also call it kind of an issue of conscience. That's that's maybe not the best term. The situations where what to do or not to do isn't exactly straightforward, what I've been talking about. It reads this, resolved, whenever my feelings begin to appear in the least out of order. This is old English, okay. when I am conscious of the least uneasiness within or the least irregularity without, I will then subject myself to the strictest examination." So what Edwards is advocating for is the discipline of scrutiny, the discipline of assessment, of examining, of saying, I don't, I'm not comfortable with this, but I don't exactly know why. And until I know why, I'm going to look into it with diligence. And see, is there some sin here that's making me uncomfortable? And if there is sin, then I will put it away. But if there is no sin, then I can accept by faith. After I explore this, I need to look into it. In the new year, I wonder, would you resolve with me, beyond the commitment to do what you ought to do and and not do what the Bible says not to do, beyond that which is plain in Scripture, would you resolve with me to separate yourself from the thoughts and the attitudes and the actions about which you simply are not convinced? About which the things that do not flow from faith? Will you set aside and move on from those behaviors which, when you do them, leave you with a pang of guilt or a sense of dis-ease? Because as Christians, we we do not want to quench the Holy Spirit. We want to heed the Holy Spirit. And not only are we told uh, not to quench the Spirit, we're told to be filled with the Spirit. And on this matter, A.W. Tozer warns us. He says, no one whose senses have been exercised to know good or evil can but grieve over the sight of zealous souls seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit while they're living in a state of moral carelessness and borderline sin. Whoever would be indwelt by the Spirit must judge his life for any hidden iniquities. He must expel from his heart everything that is out of accord with the character of God as revealed by the Holy Scriptures. There can be no tolerance of evil, no laughing off the things that God. Father, as we come before your word this morning, we want to do so with open and receptive ears and minds and hearts, we ask you to prepare us for what you want to say to us, that we might receive your truth implanted in our lives to affect the change that you desire, which you know is best and right. We praise you and thank you that you will do this for us. Pray and ask in Jesus' name. So in Exodus 34, 11, the Lord says to his people, Obey this day all that I command you. This is Israel's new beginning. This is God's way of saying to Israel, welcome back. I know you've made a mess of things, but welcome back. Come on in. And the rest of the chapter spells out in some specific ways how these Israelites are going to obey the Lord, please the Lord through their obedience. We're just going to look at a few of these verses. We'll start in 11 and 12, though. Observe what I command you this day behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's a relief, right? All the ites are gone. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Okay, the Lord is going to drive out the inhabitants of the land. The world is his, by the way. and He can redistribute people as he will. Sometimes we read this stuff and we go, that's not fair. We must remember the Lord's world, the Lord's world, and he can distribute people as he wants. There's no need here for Israel to strike up a treaty with the people that the Lord is going to displace. That would only encourage them to stay, and God clearly intends for them to go, and their presence, he says, would prove to be a snare to Israel. The reason their presence would be a snare is because they do not worship the same God, and they will tempt Israel to join them in their worship of false gods. And the closer Israel gets in relationship to these people in this land, the harder it will be for them to maintain their devotion to the true God. All right, Pastor, thank you very much. live in Hancock County. The year is 2020. I haven't seen a Jebusite in a long time. What does this mean? This actually is relative to us in this way. We aren't seeing all these people, these threats that the Lord is driving out of this land, but it doesn't mean that we are immune from worldly influence or from compromising our beliefs or or our worship by falling for someone or something that encourages us to believe and worship differently. You see, you and I, no matter where we live, are still always in danger of striking a treaty with the world. That always remains true for God's people. And when we do that, when we we become friends with worldly ways, the book of James asks, do you not know that friendship with the, the world is enmity with God? And don't you know that anybody who wants to be a friend of the world sets himself up as an enemy of God? Further, James says that when we climb in bed with the world, we are adulterous people. Why are we adulterous people? Because as believers, we're in a covenant with God. that We, we already belong to God, so we have no business giving ourselves to the things of the people of the world. Hence the caution in Exodus 34 against making a covenant, making a treaty with those who oppose God. We're already committed to God. We belong to Him. We've consecrated and set apart for Him and for Him alone. So this does apply to us. Because we can be tempted to make friends with the world. And we can be tempted to give ourselves to things that we ought not to give ourselves to as children of the Lord. And there's one more thought here. Why might Israel make a covenant with the people God was going to drive out? Why does does God even have to tell them this? Might it be because they didn't believe God was really going to take care of them? Might it be because they thought it more expedient to accommodate a pagan culture than to war against it? Easier? Less bloodshed? Why can't we all get along? Might it be because they didn't really believe that God was going to give them their territory? And so they thought they would compromise at least in order to get a part of it? And in this new year, I'd ask you to trust that God is going to give you the territory that is right. God will give you the territory that's right for you. He will do what is best for you. Please do not compromise your principles to attain something that you think you need but aren't sure God is going to give you. Look at verse 17. This one should sound familiar. Uh, Having come through the book of Exodus, we know why this verse is in here. It's not only a reiteration of one of the Ten Commandments, It serves likely as a painful reminder to Israel of that disaster that came upon them as a result of their crafting and worshiping a golden calf while Moses was on the mountain. Verse 17, God says, You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Now, in a modern world, we probably aren't inclined to do that. We probably aren't tempted to worship a a statuette. So how might this law of God apply? Biblical peacemaking author Ken Sandy has a take on this issue that I think would be helpful. He says, Most of us think of an idol as a statue of wood, stone, or metal worshipped by pagan people. But the concept of idolatry is much broader and far more personal than that. An idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. In biblical terms, it's something other than God that we set our heart on, that motivates us, that masters and rules us, or that we trust, fear, or serve. In short, it's something we love and pursue more than God. In her book, Smoke on the Mountain, an exposition of the Ten Commandments, Joy Davidman flips this command of God around from a negative to a positive. She suggests that when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, What he's saying is, you shall have me. It's not just that you should should not have all these little false gods out here that aren't going to do anything for you. What I really want is for you to have me. What I really want is for you to have a relationship with the one true living God. That's why you don't need false gods. That's why you don't need idols. Because you can have me. Maybe, maybe the challenge then in the new year is for us to pursue God. Or maybe it is to be satisfied with the Lord. Maybe it is for the Lord to be enough for us. Beloved, is the Lord enough for you? Now, there might be another application here as well. Because Israel had certainly left a land of idolatry, a land of many gods. And as we studied the book of Exodus, God thrashed them. But nonetheless, they had left a land where there were many gods. So maybe the challenge for us in this command as it was for them is to move ahead and not go back. You have left that life. You have left that culture. You have left those ways. So move ahead. You have come through the Red Sea. You have been baptized. You have been delivered and rescued. Don't go back always a tendency isn't it to go backwards we have a a, like a default switch or something it moves us in a wrong direction the scripture talks about it that that the dog returns to its vomit that that a fool returns to his folly So maybe one of the lessons here for us one of the things for us to think about as we move into this new year is go forward go ahead put the past behind get it in the rearview mirror leave it there and move ahead with the lord Verse 18 says, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of For in the month of Eib you came out from Egypt. Now the significance of this feast is lost on most people. It may be lost on you if we studied it a little while ago. But the command is for Israel, this we can, this we can get our heads around, to remember and commemorate. To do a lasting Ordinance of their deliverance from slavery. Now, the the thing about us humans is if we don't remember, we might forget. Yeah, let that sink in. If I was a tweeter, I'd tweet that. (laughs) But I'm not, and I won't be. Well, never say never, I guess. Yeah, if we don't remember, we might forget. And as believers, God calls us to make a conscious effort to remember, to be mindful, uh, to stay connected to this dramatic rescue that He has accomplished for us. Israel must remember. Israel must celebrate. Israel must commemorate regularly what God has done for them, their exodus and the Passover lamb that spared their lives. And the point, then, is to remember God's deliverance, beloved. Remember what He's done for you. He keep it forefront in your mind. Just as Israel is called to remember their exodus and the lamb that saved them, that gave them life, so we in the church are called Lord's table to a lasting ordinance, to a service in remembrance of Him, where we recall our own exodus, where we recall our own liberation, where we celebrate and remember how Jesus saved us from slavery to sin. Where we exalt the Lamb who spared our life and the Lamb who gives us it. Obedience becomes a little easier, I think, when we remember the greatness of our deliverance, when we remember and ponder from time to time just how far down it was that God needed to reach in order to touch us and lift us up. Obedience becomes a little bit easier for us when we remember the greatness of our deliverance and the great love. Of our deliverer. The hymn writer reminds us of the importance of remembering when he wrote beneath the cross of Jesus mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one suffered there for me, and from my stricken eyes with tears two wonders I did. the wonders of redeeming love and my there's power in remembering. There's power beneath the cross of Christ. Verses 19 and 20, a repeat from Exodus 13. All that opens the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you'll break its neck All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. None shall appear before me empty-handed. That's so loaded, I'm not going to get deep into that one. Uh, Let's fly high over that one and say, this is a command that tells us to remember that God has a rightful claim on what we might otherwise consider to be ours. Okay? The biblical view of possessions is that the earth is the Lord and all it contains. The biblical view of possessions is not that we are owners, but that we are stewards. God is the owner. And here he's just declaring his ownership of the firstborn. It's a way of of him keeping it before his people that he's the provider and that a portion of everything belongs to him and should come to him and be consecrated to him. It's an idea that emerges again in verse 26. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. God deserves the best. God expects a portion. Giving to God is worship. Regular giving is the best way for us to acknowledge that everything we have is all a gracious gift from God anyway. And I'm not saying that you don't work hard to earn your money or anything like that. I'm just saying that it is God who allows you to have what you have. It's very important to God that He remains more important to us than silver or gold, than money Or things. And this is just a way of saying, make sure you acknowledge what I'm doing in your life and bring me the first fruits. Bring me the best of the first fruits. In addition, this bringing of the first fruits, this bringing of an offering, is an expression of thanks. I do do fear that we are quickly becoming a thankless society, and I don't know that the church is far behind the culture in this that we're losing our sense of gratitude, appreciation, blessedness, in search of more or better. If you happen to have the spiritual gift of criticism, I carry a card on that one, sadly. Or if you find yourself like the Israelites too often in the rut of grumbling and complaining, Very unattractive. Focus on what you have. Focus on what you don't have. Maybe what the Lord has given you. Stop complaining about what He hasn't given you. Trust Him. Remember that in His grace, He's providing for you everything that you need, even if it's not everything that you want. Count your blessings. Seriously, count your blessings. The hymn writer says it, and then it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Take it for granted. And then when you do that, give of yourself, give of your blessing, not just your first fruits, but give of yourself to Him as you cultivate a new attitude of thanksgiving, a spirit that is determined in a new year to rejoice in the Lord and what He has done and what He is doing. Be a person who gives God glory. Put the grumbling and the complaining aside. One more thing to think about, one more verse, verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Sabbath was instituted by God for Israel as a way of blessing his people and setting them apart from all other peoples in the world. Now we live in a production-oriented culture and a lot of the production is for our own gain. But if we think about where Israel is coming from, just for a second, day and night they have been laboring in slavery, in bondage to Pharaoh. They've been building Pharaoh's kingdom. They've been building Pharaoh's storehouses. They've been breaking their backs, putting bricks together for this, for this king, for this awful, unappreciative king. Their own, own only worth is wrapped up in what they can produce and what they can manufacture and nobody cares about them at all. And along comes God and he says, take a break. Wow, that's good news if you're an Israelite, what's a break? <laughs> I just work and we just work and die. What's a break? God says take a break. observe the Sabbath. I want you to know that your value isn't wrapped up in what you're producing. That you're meaningful if you're not making bricks. I want you to know that I care about your body. I want you to know that I care about your mind and your spirit. I want you to know that I want you to be well, God says. Take a break. That message would have been very welcome to those Israelites in those early days, right? Yeah, we notice how God anticipates the butts that would be raised in objection? When his people became free, which meant free to provide for themselves and also free to amass their own wealth and free to begin to abide by that worldly system of production. God specifically commands the Sabbath be observed in two seasons. Here he says in plowing time and in harvest. Both of these are key seasons. I'm no farmer. I just eat the stuff they make. I don't know how to make it but I've known plenty of farmers and one might say from a straight up agricultural point of view, timing is everything when it comes to planting and harvesting. But even in these crucial windows of opportunity, God is saying, you must stop. Can't you hear it? God, I can't take a day off. I can't take a day off now. If I don't get these seeds in the ground right now, God, I can't take a day off right now. The the thunderheads are gathering. And if I don't get the hay in the barn right now. I can't take a day off. You see, the Sabbath observed faithfully is a strong declaration that God is in charge. God is in control. That God will provide. He really will take. You And that the whole thing doesn't rise and fall on your shoulders, on your effort. Now, some of us need that reminder more than others. I do. And I know quite a few people who do. God prescribes a Sabbath at least weekly. So in the new year, make time to commune with God so that you don't forget that He's in control so you don't forget that he owns you and you serve him. Make time to commune with God. Make time for worship, beloved, but don't just make time. We're getting to a point in culture where it's time for some very plain speaking. Don't just make time. Guard time. Because if you don't guard it, you won't have it. It will be sucked away somewhere. It will be spent elsewise. Make time for worship. Guard your time for worship. What does that even look like? Let me toss out a couple really radical ideas. How about you say no to the invitations from well-meaning but unbelieving friends who schedule their parties and their get-togethers consistently on Sunday morning when you ought to be in worship? How about you teach your children that corporate worship is more important than travel teams? Because if they do not learn in their youth about the sacrifices required of God followers, when will they be willing to learn that lesson? They need to hear that from you, and they need to see that from you, parent. And if this isn't a priority for you, what makes you think it would ever, there are no guarantees, but what makes you think it would ever be a priority? Don't miss worship because you have company. We live in a beautiful state. Everyone and their grandmother wants to come here in July and August. Don't miss worship because you have company. Invite your company to join you in worship. And that's not legalism. I want to be real careful about that. We're not trying to create some standard where we're taking, taking attendance and you're going to get a demerit if you don't show up. We're talking about living in a world now where it's more important than it's ever been to exercise your faith in a visible way so that you are set apart clearly as a child of God. That's what that's all about. It's not legalism. The first thing we want to run to in our minds, especially to justify when we don't want to do these sorts of things, we're in an area of prudence. I don't know. No, we are not. Hebrews says, do not forsake the worshiping of yourselves together. The first thing that we want to do is justify that. We can't do that anymore, guys. We've got to be willing to take the stand. We've got to be different. This was what the Sabbath is about, setting God's people apart so that other people would say, how do they do this? And why do they do this? And how is it that all their young men can go up to a pilgrimage and their land is protected? How does that work? Because God is in control, because God is providing, because God is in control. Remember the Sabbath. In the new year, work hard. Okay, work is sanctioned by God. You're supposed to work. Work hard, but don't work too hard. God's rhythm of work and rest because, listen, the Sabbath was made for you. The Sabbath was made for you to find some way to connect with the Lord. Okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. There's more to this. Uh, um, That's enough for now. Uh, Let me wrap it up with this one last observation. Okay, What is really required for Israel and what is really required for us if we're going to be obedient to the Lord. This is what is needed for God's people to follow God's commands and the prompting of His Holy Spirit. This one thing is essential and we know it to be trust. Think about this. That at its heart, the call to obedience is an invitation from God to trust Him. Simply to trust Him. You see, when we're disobedient, if we thought it through, we would be thinking, I have a better idea. I don't quite quite believe God on this one, so I'm just going to modify it a little bit, make it. That's what disobedience. Disobedience is a lack of trust. It's a lack of faith. It's unbelief at its core. So when God says, obey me, what He's really saying is, trust me. Believe me. That's what holds all these commands together. That's what holds our lives as disciples together. Will we trust him or will we not trust him? And you know, and I think you do because you've read the book, but from the beginning of man, all God has ever wanted from us is to The garden's all about Will you trust me? Now, why should we? Some of you are asking that. Is he trustworthy? Good question. Real good question. We know he's trustworthy. As believers, we know he's trustworthy. Every one of us sitting here as believers could come up with experience after experience after experience where God has proven himself trustworthy. We listened to many of them last week in beautiful service of testimony and song. We can trust God. God is trustworthy. But beyond our own experience, we have this word. Briefly, just want to touch on Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32. Tells us why we know that we can trust God. Because of the price that he has paid to save us. And it says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all? In other words, if God is willing to give the most precious thing to us to save us, his own son, Jesus, who came into this world, who lived the perfect life for us that we couldn't live, who died the death that we deserve to die, who bore our sins on the cross in order that we could be forgiven, God would give his most precious gift to us, what more could he or should he give that would prove how trustworthy he is or how much he loves us? The great lengths that he would go through to save He is completely trustworthy. If he will give us the Son, will he not also give us all other things? Will he not also provide for us what we need? Another way of Jesus saying this in the Sermon on the Mount, will he not also As we seek first the the kingdom of God, add all things unto us that we need. We can trust Him. So, simply negating any concern that God doesn't have our best interests at heart or that He won't provide for us, all we truly need is the fact that He sent His Son into the world to meet our greatest need, the need that we could not meet. He is trustworthy. I guess the pressing question then is, do you trust him? In your heart of hearts, do you really? Take a moment to reflect and respond. Let me ask a couple of questions and let me encourage you to simply seek the spirit in these matters that have been discussed today. My friend, are there areas of your life right now not fully yielded control? Can you think of something that you You are being prompted to do what you're not doing, or prompted to stop. You're unwilling to stop. Is the Lord moving you towards something? Is He moving you away from something? Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to obey? Are you hesitant to give something up because you think you need it to be happy or fulfilled or important? And would you later today or this week, some other time, subject yourself to the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit in these matters? Matters of obedience and matters of Let's stand and sing together two verses of hymn number 571.